The terrorist attacks that took place on September 11, 2001, forever changed the world we live in. An event that has left a global scar which, to this day, still remains undeniably etched on the modern psyche. This year, the theorists reached out to 911truth.org to help us revisit the attacks and the investigations that followed. Their media coordinator, Mike Berger, was kind enough to oblige us with his expertise and knowledge on the subjects. Nearly 18 months after the attacks, Mike began to question the official story when he read about the significant purchases of put options prior to 9-11 on companies directly affected by the attacks. These large financial wagers placed on the world's stock and options markets implied that sophisticated investors profited from foreknowledge of the attacks. This initiated years of research regarding details of the attacks and how the public record is replete with credible facts that contradict the story codified in the 9-11 Commission report and sold to the American public by the mainstream media. More than four years of investigation culminated in his first documentary, Improbable Collapse, The Demolition of Our Republic, the first film to thoroughly review the evidence for World Trade Center demolitions from a scientific perspective. The endless war on terror, massive deficit spending, radical changes in domestic and foreign policies, including curtailing the civil liberties of Americans, have been justified by the 9-11 attacks. And yet, the story put forward by the government of how the attacks unfolded without a response from our trillion-dollar defense establishment contains hundreds of contradictions and even outright lies. Did factions within the U.S. government knowingly let these attacks happen? Did they fail to act on intelligence, which could have possibly stopped the events from happening? This case file, the theorists welcome Mike Berger and let him guide us on an in-depth revisit to the events of the 9-11 attacks. Welcome to Alien Theorist Theorizing, Case File 108, um, nine, our annual 9-11 show. Um, oh. I'm Braden. I'm Zell. I'm Dan. And today we got a very special guest from 911truth.org, Mike Berger. Yes, we do. Mike Berger was born and raised about 20 minutes from Manhattan. He's earned his degree in sociology at Washington University with a focus on human motivation. He's the media coordinator for 911truth.org, and he's appeared on ABC World's World News Tonight, CNN Showbiz Tonight, Scarborough County, and as well as dozens of radio appearances, including a debate with Matthew Rothschild, editor of the Progressive Magazine. Welcome, Mike. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it's our pleasure, man. So we've done uh, we've done I think four episodes on 911 before, just our own quick research and theorizing just as armchair detectives, but we've never actually had someone who's really done the homework. So we're really excited to have you. 
Um, Mike, uh, tell tell the people who don't know anything about you a little bit about yourself. So I'm a, I'm a business owner, and I grew up in New York. I live in the Midwest now, came to college out here, got a degree in sociology. Wasn't exactly politically active when all of this went down. Uh, but a buddy of mine called me on the morning of 9-11 and said, hey, turn on the TV. The plane had just flown into the World Trade Center. It was actually the second plane. And that was, uh, that was how my day started that way, kind of like a lot of other people yep. who were around that day. And you just sat glued in, in disbelief and watching the whole thing unfold. Yeah, I was. So that's where I was on 9-11. But I didn't, um, unlike a lot of other people, I didn't really question what I was seeing unfold that morning. Um, I kind of thought this was kind of blowback from our foreign policy. Um, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't into conspiracies. I didn't really question as much what I was seeing. And for me, it was about a year and a half, uh, before I started to question and that happened. I was doing some research and I traded financial markets and I came across people on, uh, some news groups arguing or debating, making accusations that uh, sophisticated investors had to have had foreknowledge and that our government had to have been involved because of these massive bets made on the financial markets around the world. And I thought this was going to be a pretty quick and easy thing to disprove. So I pulled up uh, charts of options premiums from the Chicago Board of Options Exchange and really quickly kind of sank into my seat when what they were saying turned out to be absolutely true. Uh, and people in the financial press around the world uh, also noticed this and very quickly began writing articles stating, well, all these trades can be traced back to the people who initiated them, obviously. Uh, the, the people who were involved in these attacks initiated these trades and we should know who they are pretty quickly. And I didn't come across this until uh, 2003, in the spring of 2003, so it had already been about a year and a half. And that was how I got involved. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and reading. And so I was in shock, and for at least a day, day and a half, I just I couldn't move from the computer. I just kept reading and doing more research and seeing what the media was saying and seeing what other researchers were saying. And pretty quickly discovered that articles I would uh, look at or read on Monday would be gone on Thursday. And like uh, some other people who kind of got really focused on this, I actually started downloading anything and everything I found because it would start to disappear. And that that was how I began my my personal non-living. <laughs> so what uh, what led you to believe that obviously the markets had been, uh, what do you call them, put options when people bet against the market when they know it's going to fail? Yeah, I mean, a put option, options are probably some of the most difficult ways or trading vehicles to make money with because you have to be right about the direction that a stock is going to move and you also have to be right about the time frame within that stock has to move in order for you to make money. Options, unlike buying or selling shares, options have an expiration date. 
Right. And so basically by that date, the value of your bet, whether if it's a call, you're betting that the stock is going to go above a given price that, that you buy at within a period of time. A put option is a bet that the price of the stock is going to be below this thing called a, star, a strike price, which is basically the price at which you think the stock is going to be above or below, depending on which way you bet. And what was, what was really bizarre about 9-11 is people were making pretty big bets on, for example, American and United Airlines, but not Continental or Delta or Southwest. And that these options were being purchased less than three weeks before they would expire worthless, which meant those prices, those stock prices had to move pretty quickly and they had to do it in a very short period of time. Now, a lot of people were hoping that the 9-11 Commission were going to come out with a definitive explanation of who made these trades um, and who was connected or who may have had foreknowledge. And when the commission came out with their report, they never really, they never answered who made the trades. They tried to explain it by stating that an options newsletter writer had put out in a report to buy puts on the airlines. Um, this is not a sufficient explanation because this happened all over the world. It didn't just happen in Chicago or New York. But all of the financial markets, there were people who were making bets and making money off of this disaster who had to have had foreknowledge. So because it was such a short time before the option expired is what led you to believe that someone had advanced knowledge? Well, it was, for example, but these bets were only made on United and American, right. not on the other airlines. They were also made on the companies that insured and reinsured corporations that had leased space in the towers. So those, those companies were going to take big financial hits. So if you had bought those put options, you're going to make a lot of money very, very quickly. And again, these were very specific bets. They weren't blanket bets. If, if you think the airlines are going to be struggling, you would buy put options on some of the larger airlines, but you're going to cover the airlines, the industry. So, I mean, Delta was a relatively large airline at the time as well. Why were the bets only placed on United and American? Right. And there was no prior history of the size of those bets. The percentage, uh, I think it was like multiple hundreds, if not a thousand plus percent higher volume than in any previous periods uh, that September, the September before. So, it's not, so, I mean, these were massive bets that set off alarms. The other thing, we also know that the CIA and the intelligence agencies had systems in place at that time where they monitor market bets in real time to be able to anticipate terrorist attacks. So they, that people... Uh, they leave footprints in the markets. They, the intelligence agencies monitored this. So again, if we, we know that these bets were made, we know that these were monitored in real time, why didn't anybody do anything? No, I just, the one question I, that pops into my head now, I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Now, is there, I don't really know how buying put options and stuff works, but is there, do you think there's people out there that, 
are looking for people to buy these kind of things and go, well, that's interesting. Or is it so random that you would have to be in the know to buy those specific options? Like, so say if I went on and I was, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just saying, so if I'm looking at, if I, if I was someone who was watching the market all the time and then I saw, started seeing these kind of, these very big specific, um, you know, put options being purchased, could then I go like, that's interesting. I wonder why I'm going to put something in there too. I mean, yes, theoretically, yes. But the challenge to that idea is when you look at the actual volume. Right. So in other words, the number of these bets. So the volume was very, very small. So, I mean, for example, on United Airlines or American Airlines, any period prior to September of 2001, you might be talking about a couple hundred of these option bets being made, whereas right before 9-11, we might be talking about two to 3,000. So it's not like tons of people everywhere jumped on this. They, they, were, they were so narrowly traded. They weren't really, there weren't lots of people playing these kinds of options. And again, like, why are you going to take out an option and bet against AXA reinsurance? One of these massive global reinsurance companies, there was no reason at the time, there was no fundamental justification for purchasing these. So now there may have been way more volume on, on a company like AXA, for example. Um, but when it came to the airlines, the volume was pretty slim. So it's not like this would set off an alarm bell because the volume was so low on these anyway. Right. Okay. But if you're, if you're an intelligence agency monitoring it and you get an increase of 1,200%, that would set off some alarms. You'd think so. And again, right. And again, all these trades have to be cleared. They have to clear through a brokerage account, which leads to an actual buyer and seller. And yet, when you follow the threads of the research done, uh, this is where this becomes a very common pattern when you start to examine the evidence around 9-11. So first, you know, in 04, when the commission report comes out, they never really give you a straight answer. They don't tell you who purchased these. They just say, this guy recommended to his clients to purchase puts on airlines, not even specific airlines. Um, but that doesn't answer the question, who made these specific trades, which was one of the specific questions that the commissioners had claimed that they were going to answer in the final report. Um, many of, well, family members and lots of other 9-11 researchers, we were in Washington for these hearings. I mean, I and several other people, we got to interview the commissioners. We asked them these questions and they told us on camera, well, we're going to give you those specific answers in the report. So of course the report comes out, they don't give specific answers. Then when you go back and look, for example, uh, the Chicago board of options exchange, I believe in this case, they had claimed that the transaction data for those options had been deleted. Deleted. So you, you begin to, yeah, in other words, <laughs> evidence gets destroyed. Right. And this is, this is a reoccurring pattern with 9-11 of the destruction of evidence. So these put evidence options. Evidence that doesn't fit the government story. Yeah, over and over again. So these put options. Exactly. 
there it's not just by chance that someone made some good bets. This is seems like orchestrated insider knowledge is what is pretty much what you're saying. Yes. And again, this is worldwide. I'm just giving you a specific example. And there are plenty of academic reports and papers on the put options where it was evaluated by academics with financial backgrounds who only look at the financial markets. And they've come out and shown that, no, this isn't just some random, some people saw an opportunity to make money. Uh, it was far more sophisticated than that and far more widespread. So um, if I'm getting this right, just to sum it up, so we're pretty much following the money. So we're saying that all these trades happened within uh, how many, was it days or weeks before the attacks happened? Was it? So at, at least with the airline specifically, I believe it was less than three weeks because okay. I'm trying to think the options expires at the third Friday of the month. Uh, and I'm trying to think. So this would have been, basically you would have been buying these options the last week of August, they only would have been good for three weeks. Okay. So something had to happen pretty quickly. Now I'm speaking specifically of like the airlines. There were other trades made on other markets around the world as well. So since we don't know who made these trades, we don't know if these were connected to terrorists, if these were people within intelligence agencies that may have been able to profit from having foreknowledge. So again, this is one example of why having these unanswered questions where you get a government agency or a 9-11 commission, which is supposed to give us answers to questions like these that have never given any closure to some basic questions that we should be able to ask as Americans and we should be able to get answers to. So these, these trades should, should be easily traceable, as you said. So someone is trying to, they're trying to keep it from people. Like they, as you said, it, it, should, we, it should be going through brokers We and don't everything. know why. <laughs> we just, all we know is that for whatever reason, we're not supposed to know who made money off of foreknowledge. And now when you say make money is like, are we talking in the billions of dollars, tens of billions? Like how many, how much money do you think was made on these put options? So on the airlines specifically, it's in the low millions. Um, but again, the extent of the worldwide trading, we don't know how much. Right. Uh, and again, we're not, I mean, we're not talking about even, even if you're talking about less than $10 million, I mean, it could be something as simple as just, you know, think about if, let's say you knew something was going to happen. Think about the way insider trading works, all right? Uh, you're not going to broadcast this to the world. You're going you're gonna to try to keep that information as closely held for a variety of reasons. The more people who know, the less profitable, the more risky it is. So it dilutes your potential profit. It also exposes you potentially. So it could be as simple as there may have been people in the intelligence community worldwide who were able to cobble together a retirement in three weeks. Oh, it's tough to think about. But, but the import of it is why can't we find out who made the trades? Because again, yeah. if, if like the commission tried to tell us these were made by innocent investors who followed a recommendation of a newsletter, then just show us the trades. Tell us who they are. 
proved that they had no foreknowledge. They were acting on a newsletter, and that gets rid of this. Be gone, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, is it for others, say other, any other trades, is it pretty easy to find out who the buyer and sellers are? Well, not publicly, but every trade has to go through an exchange. Every yeah. trade is traceable back to an actual account held by an individual or a corporation. So every trade, we can know who was on both sides of those trades because the money has to go from one account to another. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's unfortunate because even it, it, they, they have the perfect scapegoat to not release them because they'll say if they get released, um, you know, these people have the potential to be harassed. And no matter what, even if they were cleared 100%, you know there's people out there that are gonna would harass these people if their names were released, unfortunately. Absolutely. But the challenge here was, again, many of the commissioners told the family members and told me to my face that we're going to answer this specifically. They didn't do it. Even if they didn't give us specific names, they another alternative would have just been to have said, look, we ran all these trades to ground. We examined the traders' accounts. And these trades were not nefarious, but that isn't what they did. Instead of saying that they actually did the due diligence to go figure out who made the trades, they made a generic statement, which they could not prove, which is, uh, we believe these trades were initiated by people who followed a newsletter writer. Well, how many people got this guy's newsletter right. out, of, out of all the people that got his newsletter? How many of them actually went out and bought options betting that American airlines stock price was going to collapse again you can you can get answers without putting anybody in harm's way but they didn't even try to make it appear that they did that right it's definitely it seems suspicious even for someone who doesn't know anything about it it seems uh does seem suspicious and it just goes along with the trend of 9-11 as you said that evidence always seems to be veiled in secrecy and or, or destroyed as you said sometimes yeah i mean well it, it, it actually there's there's a great deal of it when you start to look at it another example i mean if you want to just get into it we could kind of have a free-for-all like this and just go back and forth but another example would be the indestructible black boxes every commercial flight has two of them a cockpit voice recorder and a flight data recorder um they are rarely, if ever, not recovered. In fact, when you look at most aviation experts, when they're asked this question, none of them can think of a time when they're not recovered. I'm not talking about the data on them, but the physical indestructible boxes are recovered. If a plane, you know, like the, the plane, for example, the Egypt Air flight, they pulled the black box off the bottom of the ocean. The plane crashes at the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. They still find the black box. And yet, in a footnote to the 9-11 Commission report, all four of the black boxes at ground zero, we were told were never recovered. And what was bizarre about that is that report came out in 2004, and it was noted in a footnote specifically stating that the two black boxes from Flight 11 and the two black boxes from Flight 175 were never recovered. And the bizarre thing there was that actually 911truth.org helped to break this story? Um, was that there was a firefighter named Nicholas DeMossi who organized an ATV unit at Ground Zero 
to help recover firefighter bodies. So he brought in an ATV or ATVs, and they would have rebar cutting equipment, torches, etc., on the ATV so they could get around the site, which was pretty massive. And the chiefs tasked him with taking federal agents around the site with the equipment to pick up the pings from the black boxes. And in a self-published book, which came out a year before the 9-11 Commission report in 2003, he says, in just matter-of-factly in a paragraph, I was assigned to take federal agents around the site. We loaded up a million dollars worth of equipment into the ATV. Uh, I accidentally hit the gas pedal. The ATV was in reverse. We almost went down the steps backward, but everybody was okay. We located three of the four black boxes. Then an investigative journalist named David Lindorf, who lived in Philly, um, had an off-the-record contact who worked for the National Transportation uh, Safety Board that examines the black boxes. And he published in an article that he was told off the record that that person had examined the black boxes from ground zero. So now you have independent confirmation uh, from a journalist. You have a firefighter who claims he took federal agents around to recover those boxes. And this all came out, uh, at least with the firefighter telling his story, a year before the commission published that those were never found. So some people in the media went and attacked uh, this firefighter and another volunteer who was made an honorary firefighter for his work at Ground Zero and attacked their credibility, which makes no sense. How could they know in advance that the government was going to turn around and say that they didn't see what they saw? That's crazy that they actually, if they actually did recover the black box, I mean, that would solve, that would be a lot of answered questions. Exactly. And so there's, there's this recurring pattern of when there is evidence that they're not going to be able to manipulate, they simply disappear it. And, it, you know, if it happened once, maybe you might be able to dismiss it. But when it happens over and over again to crucial evidence like the black boxes, we have a problem. Well, I would like, I would say at least you would recover the one that went down that would, they said went down in the field. I think how would that one get, I, you could make an argument for me and make me believe saying the two that hit the towers destroyed one that hit the Pentagon destroyed, but I don't buy the, the other one being destroyed at all. I'm like, how, well, how like you were recovering passports. <laughs> well, that's actually, that's a great point. I was just going to say been, that. should have made them with passports. Whatever the cover is. The protective Black box made out there. of passports? Had yeah. with passports. Had a passport you go. paper. Yeah. yeah. This stuff's pretty tough. I'll tell, uh, mine's pretty tough. Mine's been through a lot. Except <laughs> if, you, if you get it wet, though, if you get the passport wet, you can't travel. That's so stupid. Not not the new ones. Not, the oh. new ones got the, the nice paper. They like got some nice woven fabric. Plastic laminated paper. Oh, yeah. But I, I think that's just, I think that's one of the ones that infuriates people so much is because it's, it's just so ludicrous with other information that they've, they themselves have released to then be like, no, they were all destroyed. It just is. It's one of those ones where you're like, this is, it's like when you catch someone who's lying and then you're like, well, there's like, there's nothing I can do, but this is a bold lie. And I think everyone knows. And then they finish every sentence with, yeah, that's the ticket. 
<laughs> you know, if you think about it, uh, another example would be <laughs> the air traffic controllers who were working with these flights that morning. They were debriefed by FAA managers. The FAA managers made audio recordings of the debriefings. And I think it was, it was in the summer of 05 that an article came out saying that the FAA managers destroyed those recordings because they thought it interfered with the union rights of the air traffic controllers. What? So the information that was fresh on their minds that was recorded in audio for whatever reason, allegedly, the FAA managers decided that it was an invasion of their, of their um, union rights, so they destroyed those recordings. So again, uh, this has to do with the manipulation of what really happened with those flights. Kind of along the same line, you had the DOD and the government keep putting out different timelines of when planes were scrambled of when NORAD was notified of hijackings of when needs notified NORAD, etc., And the government just kept changing the timeline. And in fact, at uh, one of the hearings, the nine 11 commission hearings on air defense failures, I'm sure I wasn't the only one whose jaw hit the ground when the military thanked the commission for setting them straight on their own timeline. <laughs> so wherever, you know, wherever the story didn't fit what the government wanted us to believe, they just moved the evidence to fit their story, destroyed the evidence that didn't fit the story, or destroyed the character of the people whose stories contradicted their version of reality that day. That's, it's crazy over and over again. And right. And what's in, and in a way what's even more dangerous in a sense is that, you know, what I had discovered in Oh three myself, where articles would disappear, mainstream media articles would just disappear. Well, now it's so difficult to get to facts related to this because it's so buried in so much garbage and disinformation because there's so many crazy ideas that are not grounded in reality when yeah. it comes to quote nine 11. And of course the perfect CIA slur conspiracy theory. Yeah. So Mike, uh, from putting it mostly together, um, or piecing, putting the pieces together, are, are you, or your organization, are you guys more in the thing that it was, this is something that was perpetrated knowingly by either like the whole CIA factions within the CIA, the U S government or factions with, or like some sort of faction of the U S government, like was the administration, the presidential administration at the time, the Bush administration, were they the ones standing to make, uh, I know there's a lot of, you know, connections and a lot of uh, webs there. Um, like who was standing to gain from this? Well, all right, uh, a multi-pronged answer. One uh, would be if you've, if you've ever heard of uh, The X-Files, you guys may have heard of that show. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. Wait, I, I've never heard. I've never heard of this show. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard of The Lone Gunman? 
Yes. Yep. All right. So do you know those characters got a spinoff, right? Right. And have you ever seen their pilot episode? I, I remember it being mentioned. I don't think I ever caught it when it was on. No, I don't think so either. All right. So you can, you can check it out on YouTube, pilot episode, Lone Gunman. But basically, this aired in the spring of 2001 before 9-11 happened. And the characters in that show on that episode, the whole 9-11 plot is exposed on that show, literally showing a plane heading towards the World Trade Center. And one of the characters asks another one, uh, you know, is, the, is our government behind this? <laughs> and the other character says to him, there you go. The <laughs> government, you know, there are factions within the government. Basically, that character's answer to your question is the Cold War is over. Arms sales are down. Any tin pot dictator anywhere in the world would take uh, responsibility for bringing down a fully loaded commercial airliner in Manhattan. Right. And so he was saying there were factions within the government. So if you look at, for one, the policy papers of the project for the new American century, which was a neoconservative think tank that had published a paper, like for example, a year before nine 11, they published a thing called a defense planning guidance where they were laying out their vision for how to update and modernize America's defenses. And they were saying, look, the, the Cold War is over. We need to pull our military out of Japan and Western Europe, and we need to concentrate our military might in the Caspian Basin, where the last remaining large reserves of oil are. And then people forget that when the Bush administration came into power, Cheney, the vice president, had these energy task force meetings. And his office was sued to make those meetings public. And that information was never made public. But from what has leaked out, it appears that they had maps of the Middle East where they were divvying up the oil <laughs> before 9-11, before all of this happened. And then in these papers, uh, in, in, for example, this planning defense guidance, they had, this is where they used the term a new Pearl Harbor a year before 9-11. They were basically saying the American people will not tolerate a massive ramp up in defense spending short of a new Pearl Harbor. Ooh. And 9-11 gave them their new Pearl Harbor. And in fact, that was a term that was used in the media on that morning even though their position paper had been published a year before. So many of the signatories or the members of this think tank were the people that you heard from on the morning of 9-11 telling you uh, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden. Before any investigation. So, it's already, oh yeah, they, already they Osama. Already, they already claimed to have known who it was and without any investigation were already making accusations that morning. Well, it's easy to know who it is when you train the people to do it. <laughs> well, that's a good way to put it, and uh, quite accurate in this case as well. And so I don't know if that, you know, that was one way of answering your question, but I mean, in all honesty, you, you have people in positions of power from the Bush administration who had histories going back over 30 years that have rotated and revolved through all the doors in government and 
in the private sector, people specifically like Rumsfeld and Cheney. Uh, and in fact, um, just this year, there was a documentary put out by the BBC by a guy named Adam Curtis uh, called The Power of Nightmares. And whenever that video was on YouTube, it would get pulled. And I just noticed yesterday for the first time that Adam Curtis, the filmmaker, put the documentary up himself. And I put it on the homepage on our video playlist. It's down at the bottom, very long, very detailed. But if you really want to understand what shaped the world leading up to 9-11 and the history of many of these neocons and what their agendas are, I highly recommend watching it because there's a lot of information from the 70s that actually applies to 9-11 because Cheney and Rumsfeld had cut their teeth during the Nixon Ford years. Um, they had also learned certain lessons about the end of the Vietnam War, such as you don't ever see images of soldiers coming back from Afghanistan or Iraq in body bags at Dover Air Force Base. The media is simply not allowed to take those pictures anymore. And that was because that fueled the anti-war movement. Right. So did the draft. So they learned that if you don't have a draft and you have a volunteer army and you control and manipulate the media so they don't show what's happening in your name, you can still maintain these ongoing wars without having to fight civil unrest or protests in the streets. That's a good point because yeah, there hasn't has there, I guess there is there there was a small movement for the end the war in Iraq, right? But it was nothing like end the war in Vietnam. Well, but I, I think this is a really good example about how our perceptions are managed. Because notice you said there was a small movement. Do you know they were the largest protests in the history of the world? Did not know that. To prevent to prevent the Iraq war. Yeah. But the media made it seem as if it was nothing. Bunch but they were the largest protests ever. But they were minimized. And if you notice, this has continued and escalated to this current day, where now there are protests all over the place going on in this country for various reasons. Mainstream media doesn't even touch it. You would never know. That's true. Yeah. Right. If you if you look at a lot of the news reports and stuff like this, it's almost like you try you almost forget that we're engaged in a war in Afghanistan. Like there are still thousands of soldiers there and we're still stuck there. 18 years and later. Yeah, it's the longest it's the longest running American war at this point. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you think they knew what they were getting into. Do you think the administration and those factions within the government knew that this would be such a huge money sink? Or did you think, well, you said that they had a map that was divvying up the oil. Do they think, do you think maybe at some point they're like, Oh, this was a mistake. Or do you think this is exactly what they wanted? I, I mean, this would be speculation. All I can do is look in the rear view mirror. So let's look at policy and look at the outcome. So when you look at, for example, you go back to the Bush administration and his cabinet, the members of his cabinet, all, a great many of them came out of the oil and gas industry. Some, I mean, people know this about Dick Cheney, but most people don't know that Condoleezza Rice had an oil tanker named after her. <laughs> there was an oil tanker called the Condoleezza Rice. And that part of this um, 
if you go back to 2001, what was going on right before Bush won the election? You had this dot-com bubble that burst. You had investigations in the stock manipulation of Enron, WorldCom, where it was probably one of the last times in the United States that CEOs who committed financial crimes actually went to prison. Well, a lot of those records and investigations were actually in the SEC offices in Building 7. When that building came down, Convenient. many of those records, exactly. Um, at the same time, there were lawsuits against the Federal Reserve and other national federal banks that were accused of manipulating the price of gold. Um, around right before 9-11, you might be shocked to learn that gold was under $250 an ounce. Really? The lowest price it had been since 1980. The same thing with oil, by the way. The same thing with Halliburton stock. <laughs> if you go back and look at financial charts, it's pretty remarkable at how low the price of oil was, at how cheap. Warren Buffett was buying silver at under $3.50 an ounce prior to 9-11 because it was historically cheap. So was gold at two twenty five to two fifty an ounce. Now the I know I know the like formal explanation for the skyrocket is that in times of uncertainty, uh, Europe and the UK like they remember from World War II their economy crashing, so precious metals and stuff. That's they were the kind of the catalyst for the buying frenzy of gold and silver again as soon as things got uncertain. That's what like that's what I had read in in the past about. Kind of makes more sense. But it's easy to manipulate that if you know that. Exactly. And when you put it all, again, how convenient that the SEC office disappears in Building 7. How convenient that the Gata Gold um, um, lawsuit, that part of that was stored. I don't remember if it was Tower 1 or Tower 2, but a lot of that was in those buildings. So in, in a weird way, 9-11 also covered up other crimes that to this day are never, ever going to be explored or exposed. So it was a multifaceted event. And so when you ask, let's turn around and look in hindsight, how, how have things changed? Well, one of the first immediate consequences of 9-11, we were told on that day, um, I I'm trying to think if it was who was it, Brian Williams or Dan Rather, who was saying, he was making a comparison and saying, you know, that, that in essence, President Bush had said we were attacked for our freedom. And so, of course, many in the media were questioning, well, if we were attacked for our freedom, the last thing we should do in response to the attack is to give up our freedom. Right. And that was the first thing that went out the window was our civil liberties. So, for example, you have you have a generation or two now of kids who are coming of age who have only lived in the United States that's been at war, where there is no free press, but they don't know it because they weren't alive to have experienced what it was like when there was a robust press in the United States. So there's nothing to compare it with. 
Um, and so, for example, just to put it in context, this whole assault on our minds about, quote, fake news. Yep. Fake, fake <laughs> news has been with us for as long as there have been journalists. True. The Hearst Papers and yellow journalism. I mean, this is nothing new. So why all of a sudden has this become such a fashionable term to use? Because we are now in a time where there's just an overwhelming amount of information thrown at us every day that it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. You can't do it. I mean, if you sat down for today and spent eight hours, seven days a week and read every 9-11 book, document and website, you would spend the rest of your life and never finish. So how do we begin to make sense of what's going on in the world? It has to do with where do we get our information and how do we know which sources to trust? So the first thing you do if you're the government or if you're the mainstream media is you label somebody like me a conspiracy theorist. Right you off. Because then immediately, as soon as you use that term, you're going to discount anything I say, even when I tell you, don't believe a word I'm telling you, go confirm it for yourself. You can go look up how many put options were purchased on American Airlines uh, two weeks before 9-11. You can also go back and look at how many were purchased the prior September and all the weeks in between. If you are willing to put in the time and to do the work, you can figure out what is going on. But I think in this day and age, most of us are too busy trying to survive and live our lives to be able to put in the kind of work and time it takes to figure out what is really going on. And it's becoming more and more problematic as information moves more quickly and we're inundated with more and more of it. It becomes more difficult to filter it and figure out what is really going on. So true. Because, and I've seen this with, with 9-11. Yeah, it's so true because like any, like any major news story now, whether it be like a mass shooting or something, hurricane, it's in the 24-hour news cycle for a few days and it's gone and you never hear about it again. Yeah, there was a, there was a, it's probably still there called the memory hole. Um, but that's precisely it. And, and I mean, again, going back to 2003, this was one of the things I was shocked to experience it firsthand. I, you know, when I came of age in, in the, in the eighties, I believed the baloney our government was telling us about the threat of communist uh, communism. I was still probably one of the last generations that still practiced going under desks to protect ourselves from nuclear bombs. <laughs> Which, you know, I kind of wonder, are we doing the same thing to kids now where you have active shooter drills in schools? How are you going to defend yourself against a person with an automatic weapon? Are, are you just... Are you embedding this layer of fear? Because one could interpret, again, some of the consequences and outcomes of 9-11 policies and where we are as creating a very, very fearful population that's very malleable. Like I can remember in, in 04, I, I got married. 
And uh, we were coming back from our honeymoon and we were transferring planes in an airport and it was two in the morning and I was grouchy and exhausted. And we had just come off another plane, but because of this airport, I had to go back through security to get on the next plane. And the TSA agent uh, said, you know, you got to take off your shoes. <laughs> and I decided I didn't want to take off my shoes, so I didn't. So the guy took his little electronic wand and put it right on the magnetic patch on my credit card on my wallet. So it went off, and then he pulled me aside for extra screening, and in front of everybody in the airport, he had me stand on the stupid mat with the footprints, put my arms up, <laughs> wands me again, puts it on the credit card mag strip, and then says, take out your wallet. Took out my wallet, and then he walked away from me with my wallet. And I just said in front of everybody as loud as I could, you're not walking away from me with my wallet. I'm going with my wallet. And he says, you know, don't get off the mat. And I said, and I just walked after him. I said, you're not walking away with my wallet and taking it out of my sight. And everybody in the airport started to applaud. And then he ran <laughs> it through the machine, handed it back to me and let me go. And what it made me realize is people are too afraid to say no. <laughs> they put up with this kind of preparation to get you to submit and people want to keep their head down. It's just natural. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to make waves. They're uncomfortable, but I think it's time that we need to start making waves and saying, no, I'm not going to go quietly. You're not going to get me to submit because you think I'm too embarrassed to stand up and question what you're asking me to do. I'm going to question it and I'm going to challenge you if it's ridiculous. And I think, you know, this is one of, the, one of the ways we have to start pushing back. Don't make it easy. Don't willingly submit and go along just to get along. You've got to push back as individuals. And I think the same thing is true about questioning every single thing I say or anybody says. Verify it for yourself. Don't believe it. Don't believe anybody who claims they're an expert. Verify it. Figure it out if it's important to you. If it's not, who cares? But 9-11 has shaped your modern life, whether or not you know it. That's true. So as consequence, we all now are supposed to submit. Nobody's allowed to question. So, for example, you can't even ask what chemicals fracking companies are pumping into your water supply because it's protected by national security. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> You're telling me that they're poisoning our water supply, but they're the ones protected by national security and our water supply is not a national security issue. Doesn't make any sense. I mean, here's a really weird take on 9-11. When you think about where the planes took off from, all right, uh, the New York flights took off in Boston. They were going straight down the Hudson. What did they fly right by that they could have flown into that would have wiped out New York City? There was a nuclear power plant right on the Hudson. And in fact, in the commission report, I believe it was uh, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, that they were, they were asking about targets. And I guess Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had said they decided not to... <laughs> 
not to go after the nuclear power plant as a target because they had assumed they were protected by anti-aircraft batteries. Now, when I read that, I started laughing. But I guess they didn't assume that the Pentagon was protected? Those, those defense turrets were offline. <laughs> and apparently we have no fighter jets around Washington, and frankly, nobody cares if you blow up the Capitol or the Pentagon. But again, the logic of the absurdity of the stuff they're willing, the story they're willing to weave, it doesn't hold up when you begin to just ask some basic questions. So we're supposed to believe that they wouldn't fly a plane into a power, into a nuclear power plant, which if you think about the impact of what would have happened if they would have penetrated a containment vessel in a nuclear power plant. Yeah, just watch the movie. Watch the movie Chernobyl or the miniseries Chernobyl. <laughs> nothing good. Nothing good happens. <laughs> nothing good. Right. So that. now again, we're told that these devious, top secret, um, uh, alleged hijackers and terrorists who pulled this off on the cheap, they chose targets that were totally defensible. They flew around the skies for nearly an hour to almost an hour and a half, if you want to count the Pentagon and Shanksville more. Totally, nobody, nobody did anything to stop them. Or we're told at least that nobody was able to stop them. Well, again, uh, I grew up through the Cold War. What about all the money that we spent supposedly protecting us from the Russians, especially now that that's back in vogue again, to say that the Russians are coming after us? Mm-hmm. Um, so... I mean, literally, the, one of the military excuses for why they couldn't find the planes was the military literally told the commission they have no internal radar in the U.S. Now, think about that for a second. How do they do training flights? No internal radar. Doesn't make sense. I mean, this is what they claimed. They claimed that they did not have radar awareness within the continental United States, that they were looking out. Okay, well, that may fly for people who don't think, but then you go and look at the record. What was one of the top things that military aircraft were used for back then and to this day? Drug interdiction. Well, drug traffickers are using small planes flying below radar, trying to evade capture, and yet the Coast Guard and the military bragged for years about their interdiction missions. So they can find small Cessnas flying below radar, but commercial airliners on a blue sky day, they couldn't find for hours. But we're all supposed to just go along and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So (laughs) question everything you're told. Everything. Well, it, should, it should be taught in school, like critical thinking. There should be a little more emphasis on that, in my opinion. Well, it used to be. It used to be. I mean, I used to think of the generation that came of age before me. Um, they looked at my generation like we were morons because they were educated in civics. They were educated in history. They knew world history. They knew American history. They understood how our government worked. They understood what it took to pass laws, what it took to run. Um, we don't even educate people on how to balance a checking account or just basic <laughs> financial information about how to get along in the world. Why is that? I mean, there are a lot of people who make nefarious claims that they're trying to dumb us down, 
But don't we have a responsibility? Aren't we able to educate ourselves? Are we that dependent on them? Yeah, but that's that's the genius of it. That's the genius of it. By making you educate yourself later on, you put yourself in debt. Then you're always chasing that. Oh, I'm you know I've now that I've learned these skills after putting myself in debt by doing these things by not knowing how to do my taxes, not knowing how to budget my checking account, not knowing how to budget in general, and you figure that later, you spend uh, the next chunk of time sorting out the mess you made. And you don't have the ability to pay attention to anything else that's going on because you're too busy stuck running in that wheel. Yeah, Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a rat race. Yeah. But again, we, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer in personal responsibility. I, I do think that there's plenty of blame to go around, but waiting for somebody else to come and save us, it's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's not reality. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but there are a lot of people who still believe and are still working towards a new investigation. I think, um, I don't know how much more, quote, factual information we really truly need. Right. Why would we need a new investigation? The question I think is, do you want justice? Do you want to try to throw people in jail? Or as we approach 20 years, are we going to ever get the truth and try to move forward, not backward? If we're going to build a sustainable future, we need to know what happened. I don't know how much vengeance or justice is going to make our future more habitable. I know that looking backwards and what it's not like, I don't think people need to be held accountable. They do, but most of these people, they're going to die before they ever see a courtroom, let alone a jail cell. Right. So is it a really, is this a practical way to focus your time and effort? as opposed to trying to solve the seemingly insurmountable challenges that we face as a nation. I mean, it's to me, the lesson about nine 11, it's about critical thinking. It's about wanting to live in the truth, even though the truth sucks <laughs> and the <laughs> truth can be very painful. It's very hard to figure out where to go. If you have no idea where you are and how you got there. And I think for that reason alone, there's value in understanding how the heck did we get here before you can decide where you're going. So to me, that's the value of this, because I also think it leads you to question a lot of assumptions that go unquestioned uh, in this day and age in the way we all live, because we are all very addicted to convenience and ease. And it's, it's easy to confuse the widespread availability of information with what knowledge is, and they are not the same thing. So I, one small example, you know, if you don't know, uh, let's say, think of a weird one. So on, on, on 9-11, one of the weirdest things that I, I think, one of the weirdest things I found was that there were a group of FBI agents who were sent to ground zero to pick up hard drives out of the rubble, not people, (laughs) hard drives. And one of the weirdest stories ever was there was a German company 
2001-2002 called Convar. All of these hard drives that they had found were sent to this German company, and this German company bragged on their website in German with video showing these hard drives and showing their super high-tech blue laser technology, and they bragged they were able to recover 100% of the data on these hard drives. And they said that this data was sent back to the FBI. Now, I bet that the people listening and that the three of none of you have ever heard the name Convar. You've never heard what I just told you. I don't think what so. was so important that the FBI sent these hard drives that they found in the wreckage all the way to Germany, got the data and then managed to make again, this information disappear. So my point about information and knowledge is you can have access to everything in the world through Google. But if you don't know what you're looking for, you are never going to find it. Good point. You would never know about Convar. No matter how much time you spend Googling, even now that I've told you about Convar, you will probably still have a hard time confirming what I just told you. And the significance of Convar is this. Another interesting story that came out in the few hours after 9-11 was allegedly there were trades made or data thrown through the computers that were housed in the World Trade Center, stealing millions and millions of dollars in credit card and other financial transactions because the people thought that the data would be disappeared when the buildings came down. So to me, what's significant is that the FBI sent manpower to recover those hard drives. We know they got the data, but they never acknowledged publicly any of it. It's not mentioned in the commission report. It's again, one of these things that went down the memory hole, but in other words, I was going to say, so this data, is it, was this like evidence of foreknowledge of the tax in some way or what exactly what, it, what was this? That's well, hard drive. See, we don't know. We don't know. The only thing we know is this was important enough data that the FBI sent people to go climb on that pile and find hard drives, paid this company the money to get the data, and then whatever they got was so damn important that nobody could know that they got it. A couple, by the way, just to follow through, a couple of years after all this, Convar gets bought out by another company and all the people who work there, they're gone. <laughs> Crazy. So the people who actually pulled the data were spread all over the place. They're no longer in the same place. The company's not still there. And either, I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to look at this, but again, this part, I'm just speculating. I can't prove what was there, but if it was important enough for them to get that data, you can look at this a lot of different ways. A, you have business intelligence that was probably very valuable from those companies that had their servers in that building. You basically just stole their business intelligence if you were an FBI agent. Crazy. So uh, That's interesting. you've got somebody like Robert Mueller. <laughs> Familiar name. Who, who seems to have protected the Saudis, prevented his own agents from investigating or questioning the Saudis.
You had Robert Mueller at the top of the FBI when whistleblower Sibel Edmonds brings internal information up the chain of command within the FBI that she was approached to be an intelligence asset in the translation department in FBI headquarters. Now, this is the super secure position. She had to have a very high clearance. And she went to her manager and told her that pre-9-11 intelligence had been mislabeled as nothing of value when, in fact, the plot was on these recordings, these intercepts, the wire intercepts. She had also overheard high-level members of the American government on taped wiretapped phones warning their black market business partners where they were dealing in nuclear technology and selling it to our enemies. And they were warning their partners about Valerie Plame's outfit in Washington. And it turned out that Valerie Plame was a CIA asset who was working on rounding up these black market nuclear deals. So she's never been allowed to publicly tell her story. She's been gagged. She became a whistleblower. She took her case up through the um, chain of command within the FBI all the way up to Mueller, made very serious accusations about there being moles in the translation department. And in fact, that the mole came to her house and offered her a job. And so what did they do? They fired her and, and promoted the mole. Now, why isn't this common knowledge in the United States? This is one example of one whistleblower. And the things that she found when she was doing her job were far scarier than the stuff related to 9-11, like black market nuclear uh, deals where we're selling nuclear technology to our enemies. And what was even more bizarre is one of the people on that wire intercept that was part of that deal was Dennis Hastert. And the weird thing is, if you followed his career, he never got in trouble for the black market stuff. What ended Hastert's career and put him in jail was alleged uh, sex with children, I believe. He was a pedophile. Well, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Well, there's some interesting circles out there. <laughs> yeah, the, the names keep overlapping. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And so I, this is why, like, 9-11, 9-11 is about far more than what people think it's about. It isn't just about a bunch of crazy people claiming that, quote, the American government did this to ourselves. Just ask yourself who benefited from this. Well, if you're the people who made the equipment that the TSA bought, which, by the way, if you look at the FAA, when they do blue team, red team exercises of trying to smuggle weapons onto planes, to this day, they're still more than 85, 90% successful in smuggling weapons onto planes. And yet we spent who knows how many billions of dollars on the equipment we all have to get irradiated by to get on a plane. And that's just one example of how 9-11 has been uh, basically a way to privatize public money. The company Halliburton that Dick Cheney used to be the CEO of, Halliburton got no-bid contracts throughout the Iraq War, and Halliburton 
was a contractor. There were stories Halliburton was putting up showers on bases in Iraq where soldiers were getting electrocuted in the showers because of faulty wiring. Nobody from Halliburton went to jail. Of course not. So not, not only were you able to uh, take public money, but you were also unaccountable for anything you've ever done. I mean, how many people remember that the Federal Reserve, the military shipped pallets of cash to Iraq to bribe Iraqis without any controls whatsoever? Hundreds of millions of dollars in cash palleted into Iraq. (laughs) (laughs) And now we've had nearly 20 years of this. So now it's probably that that difficult for me to make a crazy claim that what you're going to see within the next year or two is that the government is going to claim that they're so bankrupt that they have to take away Social Security. There can't be any health care for Americans, let alone single payer, because we just can't afford it. But nobody's willing to cut a single military program, even when you have, like the Air Force says, we don't want this plane, and they still go ahead and build hundreds of millions of dollars worth of these planes that the Air Force is never going to fly and never going to use, because the military has become a welfare program. It's a jobs program. Right. So again, if you start to think about how much money has been wasted on post 9-11 changes in our society, how we've been militarized, how we've slowly but surely had to accept local police departments that look like the guys who get off the choppers in Iraq. And we're supposed to be okay with that. And that Uh, all the weaponry that gets given to these police departments that was funded by this ongoing war on terror. Now we're bringing it to American streets and now we're the terrorists. I think something really disturbing that, that strikes me is that there's a lot of parallels between the way, at least in the United States and the United States itself, the way that it's going right now follows a lot of the things of which contributed to the fall of Rome itself. Like the the expanding military, the ever the ever expanding military, it gets so far out of control that it's the only thing propping it up is war. You have to go to war with everybody, and like you said, it's a jobs program, so you have to keep the military funded, right? You have the 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 burgeoning uh, disparity between the rich and the poor. Like you said, they keep the government keeps asking for more money, more money, but that money is not going to where it needs to be. It's going into the pockets of the rich, and those rich are the ones who are not paying taxes or getting huge tax breaks for no good reason. You know, a lot of this, and the the also now of a lot of it's coming to light. Where, like Zell said, there's a lot of people who run in these really strange circles of of decadence and things that are don't belong in, in anywhere in, in society, society mostly yeah. <laughs> in a civilized society. And a lot of this just seems to be going the way, like this is the way that Rome fell. And it's like, if we, if we didn't learn any lessons, if we didn't, we learned lessons from Vietnam, but we didn't learn any lessons from the fall of Rome. Well, it, it helps when you don't teach history. 
That's true. <laughs> That's a very, very true. And and further and further to that same point, um, this is unsustainable. We all know this is unsustainable. You can't run a country like this. It it and it isn't working for the majority of Americans. But the people in leadership roles do know history and they do know that you have to have a scapegoat. You have to keep the people afraid and you have to keep pointing or creating an other for them to hate. Because one example, it just reminds me of um, going to New York and seeing the New York 9-11 Truth Group 15 years ago and in 04 and 05, and they'd be down by ground zero trying to hand out information and talk to people. And by and large, people wouldn't stop and listen. Maybe there'd be a handful of people, but something shifted by about 06. And I can remember being down there. And in one time there was a crowd of 50 or 75 people who were actually not just listening, but we're engaging with what everybody was saying. And after about 10 minutes, the, the, the people in the crowd started to say, you know, what do you want us to do? You got us. Okay, we hear you. What do you want us to do? And I think this is the, this is the challenge. The greatest challenge is, you know, now that I know, what can I do? Right. Because it just seems that the system is so removed from our ability to influence it anymore. And even, um, I mean, I don't know what your politics are, but whether you are, wherever you sit on the political spectrum, there is no more discussion. There is no more civil debate. You can't debate policy. You can't, it's very similar to what happens when you bring up 9-11. People want to reinforce what they already believe, and they're not necessarily open to hearing information or facts that are uncomfortable or that contradict their belief systems. Well, how is this, this going to work? In a world where we are unbelievably dependent and benefit from science, and yet we now live in a time where half the country, quote, doesn't believe in science. <laughs> this, makes, this makes for a challenging future. How do you run a country like this? Because if you, you know, the art of politics is compromise. And more and more, there is no compromise when it comes to politics. The politicians no longer are concerned with doing their job, which is trying to make life better for the people they represent. They're there representing ideologies which don't exist and aren't real. Or and besides, that's the only thing that's real. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only thing that's real. And, um, and actually, that's another wonderful documentary I would like to mention, which it's called The Corporation. And it's an older documentary, but the filmmakers have now put it online for free. I've, actually, there was one segment of that film where they touched on 9-11, and I put that segment on the 911truth.org playlist as well. It's another one that I highly recommend. Just to understand how corporations have captured the system at this point. Right. You know, because whenever I hear a politician say, we can't afford that, 
then I know whatever they're talking about is something that would help a lot of people. And a, a concrete example from the recent news would be uh, President Trump had just kind of mentioned in passing that they want to index capital gains to inflation, which would, in effect, lower taxes for really, really wealthy people. Now, if any of the candidates running against President Trump were to propose indexing minimum wage to inflation, they'd be called socialists. And yet, part of the challenges we face as a country is in the last 45 years, the average working person's wages haven't gone up. It's true. No, housing, everything most, else yeah, is inflated people, except except wages. You can look that up. That's a fact. Yeah, pretty much every year, if you're not getting a raise on your salary or you're not getting a raise with minimum wage, like you're taking a pay cut. Yep. Like you're, you're not making no, any the, money. The system's leaving you behind. And if you don't educate people about how economics work, then you don't understand, but you know in your gut that your paycheck just doesn't cut it because the bottom line is if you've got to go out and buy a car rent an apartment try to buy a house all of those prices have gone up astronomically in the last 40 years and if minimum wage had only kept up with inflation not with housing inflation or college inflation or medical inflation the minimum wage would be between 20 and 25 an hour yeah. Well, imagine what that would be like if you could walk into a job and start at $20 an hour. How much pressure would that take off of you? How much stress would that remove? How much pressure? How much more would you be able to enjoy the time when you're not working? Yeah, but how, how am I supposed to make millions and millions of dollars as a business owner if I have to pay my employees livable wages? That's crazy. This is crazy talk here. This is the American dream we're talking about. If I can't step on people to make my millions of dollars, to make my life better, then... It doesn't require that. And even somebody as nasty as Henry Ford knew this. Henry Ford's big deal was his employees couldn't even afford to buy his cars. So what did he do? He created the $5 day where every worker made five bucks a day. And guess what? They could afford to buy his product. I mean, this is one of the most bizarre things about modern economics is the people who run these corporations don't understand that the people who work for them can't purchase their own product. And that if you really wanted to get wealthy and you wanted the economy to do well, a growing economy raises all ships. Right. But people don't, people don't think that way. People don't think that way. Right. Well, the problem is rich people, pe- people rich people think don't of, think that people way. Thi- people, people think that way. The problem is, is this corporation, like corporations, but kind of a, a mind of their own. And when these things start rolling, it doesn't matter. All that matters is the bottom line. Now it's not projecting into the future. It's right now. What are profits right now? How can we maximize profits right now? None of it is looking ahead. Like none of this is taking any of that options. How can I make the most money right now? That's all it is. And that, that's all people care about. And it's not even, if you talk to most people, I think most sane people you talk to every, everyone's in agreement. Everyone's in agreement. But the, as soon as this, you get this weird corporation mindset of the corporation becomes an entity of its own and it just starts steamrolling. It's just 
profit, profit, profit. Yeah, like look at Amazon now, right? Like Amazon's now like <laughs> there's documentaries coming out. You have they have social media teams that are paying people to be like, this job is good. We're not suffering. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's. Meanwhile, they're working in a in a warehouse that's not air conditioned, and their health care is when they pass out, they literally send an ambulance instead of air conditioning the warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's literally happening with Amazon. <laughs> yeah, pretty backwards sometimes. Yeah. But again, we put up with this um, to whatever degree that we have a voice and that we have an ability to push back and to challenge. I think we have an obligation and a responsibility to do that as Americans to to try to have the common sense conversations where we do build relationships and real world allies to work together towards building something sustainable because another, you know, the same thing would come up if people understood healthcare. We're the only democracy in the world that doesn't give its citizens healthcare. And because our healthcare is so connected with where you work, you're basically stuck with an employer. If you, especially if you have a serious medical condition, you can't afford to quit your job. So again, if you wanted people to have better lives, the first thing you would do is take profit out of healthcare, get rid of the insurance companies, reel back what the pharmaceutical companies can charge. And frankly, why we allow pharmaceutical companies to run ads on television, I do not understand. No. Because frankly, there's no day that I wake up and go, I really want a black tarry stool. <laughs> Very true. Good point. Good point. So should I, it's up to you. I don't know. We've kind I, of uh, rambled all, yeah. all over the place. Let's, Do you let's want to play any of the MP3s? So uh, Mike gave us a list of MP3s that he says are kind of been lost to people over the last few years. So maybe uh, let's go through. Uh, maybe let's do like a, your top three, something that you think people should hear. I'll tell you what. I, I would say play number eight, because I know that one nobody's ever heard, <laughs> and it's really short. Is that the Ike Skelton? So this is, uh, yeah, Ike Skelton, who's, who is on the Armed Services Committee, and he's a representative from Missouri. And on 9-11, David Wellner of NPR goes to the Capitol, and this is, this is the short audio clip of the question he asked Representative Skelton. Keep in mind that after 9-11, if you recall, everybody in the government kept making excuses for why nobody could have known they were going to use planes as weapons and why nobody could do anything. So keeping that in mind, listen to what Representative Skelton says when David Wilma asks him, what the hell did you know about this? <laughs> Here he is, Ike Skelton. NPR's David Wilma is on Capitol Hill. David, what's happening there? I spoke with Congressman Ike Skelton, a Democrat from Missouri and a member of the Armed Services Committee, who said that uh, uh, just recently the director of the CIA warned that there could be um, an attack, an, an imminent attack on the United States uh, of, of this nature. Um, so this was not entirely unexpected. Um, several members of Congress have talked about the need to step up domestic uh, defense uh, in, in light of this. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about a national missile defense shield, uh, and of course what's happened today uh, would not be the kind of, of, of event that could be stopped by such a shield, and 
Uh, there's talk already of shifting money into beefing up uh, the National Guard, uh, taking other measures to heighten security domestically uh, to prevent uh, what seem to be further attacks um, of this nature. So, I mean, what's absolutely insane about that is, again, on the day, uh, Ike Skelton made it really clear, A, this wasn't a surprise, B, the head of the CIA had warned us. So if that were the case, one might want to ask, how many of you have ever heard that annoying tone for the emergency broadcasting system your whole life? The one time that you actually needed to use it it was not used. Has anybody asked about that? Has anybody ever brought that up before? Good question. <laughs> I mean, is isn't it, that is, what it was about? Is it this the sound? Emergency broadcast system. Is this it? Yeah, I think that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like that one. Yeah, that's, annoying that's a sound. weird thing. I particularly love that clip because it just blows a hole through the whole government narrative in one shot. I mean, it's not like uh, Ike Skelton is a lefty communist. Uh, He's on the Armed Services Committee. He kind of knows what's going on. Personally, as a congressman, I would have been flipping out asking in light of the fact that George Tenet had just been there and told them that there was likely an imminent attack coming. Why didn't they evacuate the Capitol when they thought a plane was heading towards Washington and the skies were undefended? Were they just going to let Congress sit there so a plane could nail them? I'd be asking that question if I was a Congress critter. Uh, Can we do another really short one? Number 10, Mark Dayton. He was a Democratic senator. He's one of the guys who did ask some questions about the timeline that the military put out. Uh, That ended his career as a senator. (laughs) <laughs> yep, here we go. Senator Dayton on uh, NORAD. NORAD issued an official chronology which stated that the FAA notified NORAD of the second hijacking at 8.43. Wrong. FAA notified NORAD of the third hijacking at 9.24. According to your report, wrong. FAA notified NORAD of the fourth hijacking at an unspecified time and that prior to the crash in Pennsylvania, Langley F-16 Combat Air Patrol Planes were in place, remaining in place, to protect Washington, D.C. All untrue. <laughs> so, for example, here's a sitting senator who's basically calling them out that their timelines were basically all made up. Um, and then I don't know if you want, if, if we've got two minutes. We got, we got all the time in the world. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, number one is short. It's the co-chairman. Tom Kane, who is a Republican, governor of New Jersey. Uh, I don't even need to intro that. Just that's who he is. Wait till you hear what this genius has to say. Here we go. Two years after 9-11, the Republican chairman of the commission investigating the attacks is now saying they could have and should have been prevented. Tom Kane, appointed by President Bush, has told CBS News, quote, I do not believe it had to happen. There were people certainly, if I was doing the job, who would certainly not be in the position that they were in at that time. Because they failed. They simply failed. Kane has not yet named names. But some 9-11 families are pointing to the president's national security advisor and her take on al-Qaeda. I don't think anybody could have predicted that these people would take an airplane and slam it into the World Trade Center, take another one and slam it into the Pentagon, uh, that they would try to use an airplane as a missile. (laughs) And then... 
that leads right into number two. So Dana Rohrabacher was also a Republican representative. And uh, to me, I I have a warped sense of humor, obviously. But wait till you hear this one. Just makes you roll your eyes. Aren't you still amazed the president got a briefing on August 6th before 9-11, less than about a month before 9-11, a month and a couple of days, that said bin Laden to attack inside the United States? Uh, Let me tell you something, Chris. What more do you want? Well, let me tell you something. The day before 9-11... I called up the White House. I had figured it out. You know, I've been deeply involved with fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan for five years. I figured it out. We're about to be attacked in a major Who'd terrorist you call? attack. I called up Condoleezza Rice. I had an appointment. She made an appointment to see me the next day on 9-11. And on her schedule, it says, see Dana Rohrabacher to be warned about, about impending terrorist attack. Wow. And if I could figure it out, why couldn't the CIA figure it out? I mean, I knew it was. Well, it was well I'm sorry, but George Tenet having breakfast that morning with David Bourne, ahead of the University of Oklahoma, and said, "I hope it's not that guy trying to get flying lessons." I mean, how 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 come they knew, but nobody did anything? Well, we've got hundreds of people working over at these intelligence agencies on Afghanistan, on Bin Laden, the number one target, and we weren't warned about something uh, uh, an operation like this. I mean- I've always wondered that. <laughs> So here are examples, again, from actual mainstream media, NPR, uh, NBC, where they're talking about this without speaking about it in a way that makes anybody who asks questions sound like an idiot, and actually in a way that's even more damaging to the government's case. They're pointing out contradictions, and these cases, you've got uh, two, two different representatives who are saying, yeah, this didn't really come as a surprise. Why didn't anybody do anything? And then again, the bre- the breakfast meetings that day are a whole other delightful topic for 9-11. But he briefly, Chris Matthews briefly mentioned the one where uh, George Tennant is having breakfast with his mentor, David Boren, who was a former senator and I believe president of the University of Oklahoma, which, of course, I have to throw in at least one tidbit of a juicy 9-11 coincidence. Uh, one of the, I believe, one of the hijackers' tickets was purchased on an open terminal at the University of Oklahoma. Go figure. That guy, who's the president of the university, is having breakfast with the head of the CIA, and they tell him what's going on. And the head of the CIA guy, I hope it isn't that guy who was taking those flying lessons. <laughs> I wish I had some juice and could do something, but I, you know, I got to have breakfast. It's just a weird world, folks. It's just a weird world. Um, I'll throw this in. Do any of you you ever know the name Robert Anton Wilson? Mm, Doesn't ring a bell. Ringing bell. All right. He was, he was a writer. Uh, He was known for writing some of the stuff he wrote. He, he wrote about delightful conspiracies. Uh, but the title of a book, it was actually a screenplay he wrote, has become um, basically the age we live in. And the title of the book was Reality is What You Can Get Away With. I like and that. I think that's basically where we live. <laughs> Reality is what you can get away with. Yeah, it's what you can get away with. I mean, 9-11 proves that beyond the shadow of a doubt. I mean, here are media pundits, senators, congressmen, all these people are publicly acknowledging from one point of time to another that 
they knew this was coming and nobody did anything. And yet nobody was fired, reprimanded, court-martialed, or punished in any way for not doing their job that morning. Not the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the second in the National Command Authority. It goes to the President, the Secretary of Defense. Um, that morning, he did a briefing. The day before, he announces the outcome of a Pentagon audit where they found $2.3 trillion was missing. Okay, the next day, 9-11 happens, and guess who dies in the Pentagon? No. The people who perform the audit. No. Because, well, of course, because Al-Qaeda does not like bean counters, so they sent them to that wedge intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if you go look up the majority of the casualties in the Pentagon and the wedge that was hit were the people who were bookkeepers and accountants as part of the Office of Naval Intelligence that did the audit. I would I would have loved to have been there for that conversation where Osama bin Laden's uh, talking to the kamikaze pilots and being like they're like let's hit the nuclear facility. He's like no no there's these auditors. I've got this report of these auditors, <laughs> and it's gonna really, yeah. I'm telling you, it's gonna cause chaos. Chaos. I say theorists are gonna go crazy. Forget the nuclear. Forget you guys keep saying this nuclear react. Forget that. We're going after the bean counters. And so now you understand, I think a little better, why I bring up reality is what you can get away with. Because you just couldn't make this up. If you wrote the movie, <laughs> people would be like, this, this isn't believable. <laughs> no, it's not believable. Um, and again, this just with 9-11, wherever you pull on a thread, everything kind of disintegrates like this at every level of the story. I mean, I got personal phone calls from people who live near Shanksville. And I had people offer to send me things they found in their backyard, in some cases, five miles away on the other side of a mountain. Crazy. So they would, they would say, how, how can you explain this? And I said, well, I can't explain it. You're the one calling me, telling me this stuff fell out of the sky in your backyard. Well, if the plane crashed, there's no way... That, like, in one case, somebody actually said that they, uh, they had found a Koran. Now, maybe they did, but I don't know how a book goes four miles in a light breeze. Uh, or then you got the weird case of, like, the, the dancing Israelis and the Mossad agents that were exposed by Carl Cameron at Fox News, who did a very, very long, in-depth report, which Fox News made disappear. But you can still find it on YouTube. Uh, about the proximity of the hijackers and Israeli assets, Mossad agents, living right around the block from them, following them throughout the United States, all over the place. So the, the notion that uh, hijackers, the alleged hijackers were laying low and they were being very quiet, it's not true at all. <laughs> Um, and they were being monitored by multiple intelligence agencies, including the CIA, the FBI, the Mossad. Um, again, everywhere you look at the story, it falls apart. And then there are always people who come up with the, well, my objection is if you really think this was a conspiracy, how come nobody's spoken up? That's the main one. Well, do you know how many whistleblowers? have spoken up 
you had three women whistleblowers who were on the cover of Time magazine. You have dozens and dozens of intelligence agents from all across the different alphabets who have come forward and spoken out and lost their jobs and have, have become whistleblowers. You have hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds and hundreds of structural, of structural engineers, engineers that say, buildings don't fall like this. this. Now it's thousands, actually. Yeah. Like 3,000 like, like, now. The buildings don't fall like this, and they're like, you quacks. They did here. And this goes back to the whole thing about science, because from early on, um, a lot of people spend a lot of time focusing on the arguments about demolition. And if you notice, I haven't even brought them up. Yeah. I haven't brought them up because the biggest objection that I've heard is, well, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand gravity and things falling to the ground. Hey, if, if, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't believe what your eyes are telling you, nothing I can say is going to shift that. If you watch hundred story buildings disintegrate in less than 10 seconds, if you're going to explain to me how you can do that without using explosives, then let's just eliminate the demolition industry. Why do we need them? So just set some paper on fire, fly a plane in or just blow up some jet fuel in the building. Voila, you're done. There you go. You don't have to worry about them falling over. Now Straight we, down. we last year, cause every year we kind of weigh in at a different thing. So we've last year, I want to get your take on last year. I never learned about this, but all the torched cars on nine 11 that like across the, across the Island of these burned out cars that are just, just frames that are nowhere near the towers. Yep. And they're like, and you're like, Oh, what, what about those things? They're like just a heat wave. And you're like, what? Like a heat just rolled through. <laughs> There's a way simpler explanation, but of course, nobody talks about it. First of all, a lot of those cars, I'm assuming you're talking about the photographs of cars along, I believe it was FDR Drive. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so, so, yeah. Which, which is quite a few blocks from Ground Zero. Um, those cars were pulled from the underground garages as they were digging and doing rescues. And the, one of the reasons I know this is I have photos from... Ground Zero volunteers who were not, first of all, the, the Ground Zero volunteers were not allowed to take pictures. They were not allowed to take anything off the site. And the FBI had posters up showing them what a black box looks like, which is orange, and then asking for them to help them find the black boxes. Um, but it was a crime for any of them to take photos or to take anything. Well, I met a lot of people and every single one of them had hundreds of CDs of photographs. So I've had photographs from the underground garages before the cars were pulled out. So at least in the case of the ones on FDR drive, those were towed. Oh. There are some other photographs of torched cars, which I've never been able to figure out how it happened. And those actually come from the same book, that the firefighter, Nick DeMossi, had talked about taking federal agents around to find the black boxes. There are photos of burned cars very close to seven and to where the towers were. But it's kind of surreal because the firefighters are describing walking down the street and looking at these burned out cars, but there's nothing else near them that's burned. Yeah. 
Now, it's possible that burning debris from the planes or the building's impact flew into those cars. But man, I'm going out on a limb to try to guess because there really is no simple explanation. Well, so, and some of the cars will be like half of their paint evaporated and the back half, you can still read the cab number and like weird stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But again, it all depends on where those cars were. So what I'm talking about were pictures from the day of 9-11 before anything was moved in the street. Those are the ones that I find particularly difficult to understand. And even in the book, if I recall, uh, they even, the firefighters in the book comment on it because it's surreal, even to them at the time. Like there's just something, it's more than um, unnatural. There's something odd, but again, these are things that are without knowing what happened in that particular spot that day and where those vehicles were originally, it's hard to know because you see how far beams shot out of those buildings and you can tell, like, for example, there's a picture in here of a cop car and it's only because I'm from Manhattan and I can identify the buildings in the background that I know this car was directly across from the North tower. So it doesn't surprise me that the car, part of it's burned up. Shit fell in the car and the car caught on fire. But there are other ones that, no, it's, uh, it's, it's a, that's a challenging one. Uh, now, Zell, should we ask some, some of the questions that are being thrown up on Patreon that while we've been doing this? Yeah, let's... I got, uh, I got the first one. This is from uh, that one guy. Uh, he wants to know your thoughts on... Uh, the support beams in the basement of the Twin Towers looking like they were cut or weakened by some sort of plasma torch. He heard about this years ago and has always been interested in that possible conspiracy. So, so I think he, I think he's, I think he's talking about the specific the one where it's got that perfect angle s slice down it. I think the first person to publish those photos or that I remember seeing them was actually Eric Hufschmidt. Um he was the first person to raise the questions I believe about those beams that have the absolutely perfect angle cut. Yeah. Um, I mean, my take on it. And again, I can't prove this, but what I can say is thermite had to have been used to cut columns. And that's the way you're going to attach the thermite to cut those beams like that, to bring the building down within its own footprint or as close to its own footprint as you can for a hundred plus story building. Um, and you had, um, so we got, I helped uh, the New York 9-11 Truth Group and a couple other of the researchers wanted physical evidence to test. So, there was an artist who lived across the street from the South tower whose windows blew in when the towers collapsed, when she was allowed back in her apartment, she gathered up a lot of that dust and put it in a vase to make a, a piece to remember. And she gave us some of the material that she had put in the vase, which was tested. And that was the, that was one of multiple samples that they found small paint chips in, which I believe were green on one side, red on the other, and it was a paintable form of thermite. 
Um, there were also pieces of steel from the impact zone that were tested. They tested positive for thermite. The other weird thing about the dust sample is they found micro spheres of iron in the dust. And when you have a thermite re chemical reaction, steel, the byproduct of, of the steel becomes iron and aluminum sulfide, I believe. And that looks like a very, very light gray smoke, which is what you see rising from the towers. Right. So that chemical reaction is also, in my opinion, the only possible explanation for how you could have the kind of sustained heat and fires under ground zero for months as they pumped millions of gallons of river water into the base of the tower's skeleton sarcophagus. And there are videos of firefighters where you're literally looking through a hole like a window into a furnace underground. In some cases, eight weeks after the buildings had come down, still, jet fuel can't do that. Still molten steel. But thermite. Oh yeah. Still molten steel, still hot with the fire chief basically telling the guy with the hose, you know, don't hit that with the hose or we're going to have a cloud and we're not going to be able to see. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's so darn hot. And the guys described, they would go through work boots daily just from the soles melting. That's so crazy. Things you don't really want to think about. Yeah. Now, on that same topic of the demolition, are you familiar with um, Dr. Judy Woods's theory on the tower collapse? Well, yes, and I believe Judy was one of the people to bring up the cars because she thought that was a space-based weapon, and that was the only explanation for how those cars could get burned like that so far away from ground zero. Yeah, and so what her kind of theory was that the towers fall and they don't really make a like an impact like on the Richter scale when that weight of that building should have produced I can't remember the exact numbers but it should have produced a number equivalent to other like demolitions of like what was like stadium in Seattle or something like a big a big building should register on the Richter scale and these giant 110 110 story buildings don't really register what uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that theory there there are seismic graphs that do show um they're either showing explosions or the beginning of the implosions, if you want to debate what showed up on the seismographs, because there are tests of the seismographs. Second, I think it conflates a couple of issues, one of which is, as the buildings, you have lower Manhattan blanketed in fine particles from the basically destruction of the concrete floor, plant, floor pans as the buildings are collapsing. So on the one hand, you've got to have mass to pile drive the building, but you can't have mass that's also at the same time shredding itself into fine dust. Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. So there are other possible explanations because A, those were not traditional demolitions. Seven was a more traditional demolition where you see the charges go up the building. The towers were in no way a traditional demolition. If anything, they appeared to go top down 
but that's only if you ignore the eyewitness testimony of and the injuries sustained in the parking garages. Uh, in some cases, there are claims made that the explosions went off in the basements just before impact. Um, trying to think of the guy's name. There was a worker interviewed by NY1 New York Channel 1. Morelli was his last name. And he described going into the equipment room where he was changing for his shift to go into work. And you think it was a tool room and there was some massive press and he hears an explosion and he describes walking back into the other room and like everything is gone. He walks into the underground parking garage and the walls are imploded and he described seeing people helping people who have shrapnel wounds with skin hanging off their bones. Jesus. Now, this is, it's hard to understand how this could be a consequence of the plane's impacts 80 plus stories above. Plus, when he, this is the first plane, he then helps these people, and the only way for them to get out was to go through the underground parking garages to the other tower, and then the whole thing happens all over again while they're in the other tower. So I believe there is significant evidence of explosions cutting the base columns of the buildings, at least in the towers, before or at least as closely as possible as the moments of impact from the planes. Second, I think, and again, I can't prove this, but I'll give you my opinion after doing a lot of research. Um, I believe that thermite was used in combination with some type of explosive. So in other words, the mass of that building was being blown up and disintegrated, which is why you don't see those shock waves because the building didn't, as some people originally claimed, uh, pile drive itself. Yeah. I mean, yes, there was a hell of a lot of mass that got compressed into those sub-basements, but you're talking about an awful lot of mass to begin with. But that can't account for the blanketing of the city in dust. Pulverized so in other dust. words, the mass disintegrated before it hit the ground. That would be why they're not going to be the similar kind of seismic spikes that you would see in other classical demolitions, in my opinion. Okay, so you're not so much on alien or... Uh... Space-based, <laughs> laser beam, moron, convention, some type of highly advanced conventional explosives combined with thermite that would kind of stop it from actually hitting the ground with such force. Yeah, I mean, I ask myself, what's this? Look, it's even simpler, right? If I had a job to do, how would I do it? How, how would I have gotten explosives into the buildings with people in the buildings? How would I have put the thermite in there? I mean, these are, these are questions you you have to be able to answer in order to understand the argument you're trying to make. Well, I mean, there are simple answers again, and I try to go for the simplest answer. So one of the issues was um, in both towers, the Port Authority had been, quote, upgrading the fireproofing. Just again, another one of these weird coincidences that the majority of those upgrades happened to be on floors that were impact zones for the planes. So what would happen is as a floor would turn over, a tenant would turn over or move out, 
um, Port Authority would contract with, quote, somebody, and they would go in and reapply fireproofing. Well, that would be the ideal time to be painting on a little thermite while you're uh, exposing the external and internal columns. But nobody else would have access to the floor, and they wouldn't think anything odd that the building is being renovated when a tenant moves out and the floor is closed. So it can all be done very simply without drawing any attention. And this had to be a long-term process in order for this to happen. You know, like the claim, for example, in Building 7, where you have people live on the day saying, we know that building's going to come down. And then, like Larry Silverstein saying, well, we decided we were going to pull it. You didn't send somebody in to wire that building that day. That's absurd. Yeah. See, that that part, I used to, last year we talked about it, I came, to, came up with a my own little theory. Because with that exact statement... I sometimes think that after the 90, like the nine, the car bombs in the 90s, I sometimes think that these buildings were pre-rigged as a contingency plan because they're like, what would be the damage if a terrorist knocked this over sideways in the city? Like if that car bomb would have worked. At the same time, that bombing showed that you're not knocking those buildings over, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, it did. But, but you got to think someone was like, what's the damage? Right? What would what would have what would have happened if that worked? Right. I mean that. Look, that's true. And in fact, I just got an email yesterday, which it's, this is a recurring email about people who hypothesized that when these buildings were built, that that exactly was a concern. That if something were to happen and these things would fall over, uh, you'd wipe out Lower Manhattan. So people always wondered, did they build this into the building? Um, again, I prefer the simpler path. Uh, because again, if they built it into the building, I think it would have been made public because it would have been an easy, plausible explanation that the American public would have bought. Yep. Easier, easier than, uh, office fires and jet fuel. (laughs) So again, I just go for, I mean, ask yourself if you had to carry this out and you had to get away with it or another way of looking at it think about all the best mob movies you've ever seen right if i'm going to order a hit on a guy i don't ever talk to the guy who's going to carry out the hit and i don't ever say i'm going to take out a hit i'll say you know you know if louis disappears i'd have a better day that's it i don't have to say anything else you know exactly what i mean you know who louis is you get it done that's your (laughs) job and and in a way you know, the moving pieces. So then, all right, let's say there was a team that had gone in and that had quote upgraded the fireproofing and applied thermite and explosives in just the right places. Well, how do you ensure they don't talk? They didn't know they were putting it on. It'd make my day of, yeah, make my day real easier if these guys disappeared. Exactly. And now think about it. You're willing to kill the people in these buildings. You're willing to go to war forever and kill as many people as it takes because that's what you do. So what now all of a sudden I have a conscience. So how many, how many people were on that? Does anybody have an exact number or was it perhaps not even the whole, like some of those people actually were there for fireproofing maybe one or two or plants, perhaps something like that, or. 
Um, I'm trying to think. I have to go. I don't know that we've ever been able to get a real answer from Port Authority about who got those contracts. Because Port Authority is a quasi-governmental, quasi-private, weird kind of little entity. They're their unique own thing. They control all the bridges and tunnels in New York, New Jersey, uh, I think in Connecticut. It's tri-state. Um, so we don't know. But again, it's you have, let's talk about who would have had the expertise to do this. Uh, my opinion only, Mark Luazzo of Controlled Demolition. He holds, he's the one who did the Sky Dome that somebody brought up in Seattle about Judy Wood said with the impact. Yep. He holds the world record for the tallest building demolition in the world. And frankly, again, in my opinion, there's never been three demolitions that were more perfect than what happened in New York that day. In fact, the FEMA report, the first report on the collapse of building seven, they actually said the building fell within 75 feet of its own footprint. Well, that's a 420, 500, no, 420 foot building, something like that. Yep. To fall within 75 feet of its footprint. And in fact, um, I did a documentary back in 06 about the buildings called Improbable Collapse, the Demolition of Our Republic. And in that film, I include footage that was shot by a major network, never aired, and stolen from the person that they got to shoot it. That person contacted us and offered to give me the footage. And I put the footage in the movie on the night of 9-11. This guy named Bucky was down there with a high eight video camera and a very, very famous newswoman. And her producer asked him to walk into Ground Zero with them. They were dressed with medical scrubs and masks, and they were going in with the pretense of giving water to the first responders. And he told them over and over again that he did not feel safe or comfortable doing this. And they basically talked him into it and they told him how to hide his camera. And then the producer took him right up to building seven, which was in the street and took him to the corner and had him point the camera south to where the North tower would have been. And you can see along the sidewalk that building seven Almost the entire building stopped at the sidewalk, barely hit shit on the street. I mean, I'm sorry, on the curb, barely anything on the sidewalk. And if you look at the damage to adjacent buildings around seven, there was very little damage from the collapse of seven. It was a perfect demolition. Now on, on the topic of seven, have you, uh, cause uh, University of Fairbanks, Alaska just released their four-year report on the actual collapse of the building. Have you got a chance to look at it? I looked at, I mean, the summary, everybody keeps saying the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It's everybody, <laughs> I mean, what everybody thought. It's not really a surprise. Yeah, it's what everybody I mean, look, thought. Even FEMA, the first, very, very first report, FEMA showed pictures of steel um, that had sulfidation. Uh, and they said, well, we can't figure out how did this steel get eroded like this? This is a chemical reaction. And a couple of people said, well, it's probably pollution. 
Well, <laughs> well then every <laughs> skyscraper steel frame building in the country, somebody better start inspecting. No kidding. But yeah, I mean, again, over and over again, we keep coming to the, to the same conclusion that buildings don't fall down when they're built out of steel and they burn. They just don't. We have a hundred year history and, and we can keep fall. coming up over and over again. But again, we know what free fall is. Steel can't dissolve magically. Buildings can't fall that fast if there's actual structure. Something has to get the structure out of the way in order for the entire building to hit the ground. So again, just, you don't have to be a scientist, common sense. Yeah. Got, if- another, got another question here from Brittany. Uh, hi, Mike. I enjoyed your website and appreciate people like you and the work you have done. Last week, I read an article stating that the Trump admin was requesting an extension on releasing 9-11 related docs. According to the article, the victims' families were wanting these documents as part of the lawsuit they are filing against Saudi Arabia and their government for helping coordinate and execute the attacks. What would be the reasonings for the U.S. government to request more time to decide on releasing these documents besides national security? Any thoughts? How likely, in your opinion... (laughs) Go ahead. It says... How likely, in, how likely, in your opinion, is it for Barr to release these documents? Again, I think, uh, first of all, I think it's a great question, and it shows you're paying attention, because here's the thing. Uh, I remember very early on in the Trump administration, people saying, uh, you know, this is great. He's come out saying he's going to get to the bottom of it. He's going to tell us the truth. Again, my opinion was um, I grew up in New York. I know plenty of people whose lives were ruined through business dealings with the president. So I don't believe anything the man says ever and never have. Um, As for why, this is kind of the same ongoing aspect of the relationship between the people in each administration and the rulers in Saudi Arabia. So for example, we know that Kushner is on very good terms with the Saudis, and they have a great deal of interlocked business dealings. So for the president, who has been very outspoken about wanting to get the truth out about this, to do the same thing that Obama did and the same thing that Bush did, which is to protect the Saudis, um, I think it's a continuation of exposing the corruption in our own administration, that they're not ever going to let the facts come out because they know they'll be surrounded by a field of burning pitchforks. (laughs) They're never going to be allowed out of any of these buildings without a security detail ever again, which frankly, in my opinion, is the way it should be. Um, There's no justification under national security 18 years later that we can't know. And in fact, you've got like Ali Soufan, who was an FBI agent, whistleblower, talking about the Saudis. Um, I just, I don't even think I made it live yet, but I was about to post an article uh, by the New York Post, Paul Sperry, who just wrote an opinion piece, again, pointing fingers at the Saudis and their relationship. And there are tons and tons of people within the FBI and plenty of whistleblowers who've pointed out over and over again how Robert, actually Perry, uh, Sperry's article is about specifically how Robert Mueller covered for the Saudis and prevented FBI agents 
from investigating them, that FBI agents acted as their escorts to get them out of the country when nobody else was allowed to fly on an airplane. And yet they were allowed to get picked up and flown out of the country, even when people in government couldn't fly. That's crazy. Um, and so again, the alleged guy who people had, or some people had hope was going to quote, expose Trump. I mean, this is the cover-up artist. You don't bring the cover-up artist in to expose anything. <laughs> His job is to cover it up. Right. And so I think, I think that goes to, to why we're not, we're not going to get that information because the families want it because they need it for their lawsuit. But again, the families were told for over a decade they're not allowed to sue the Saudis because of their protection as a sovereign government. And then it took, what, 12, 14 years before Congress says, you know what, we're going to remove the immunity. Obama wanted to veto it. So again, why is Obama preventing the American public and 9-11 families from being able to go into a court against people who were connected directly to the alleged hijackers and gave them assistance? And um, there's an article, uh, paper down in Florida, uh, Bulldog, where these guys, this little paper, did one heck of an investigative journalism job where there was a family, a connected Saudi family living in a home in Sarasota. And basically, the family disappears right after 9-11, literally leaving food in the refrigerator, car in the driveway, leave the country, go back to Saudi Arabia. This little paper down in Florida um, sues the FBI to get the FBI to release the documents on what surveillance they had on this family and what they knew. And the FBI kept coming back and saying, we got nothing, we got nothing. And finally, the federal judge held the FBI in contempt and said, if you don't start producing the documents, we're going to put you in jail. And what do you know? The FBI magically came up with 80,000 documents about this one family. Just like that. Just like <laughs> that. And again, who was running the FBI? Robert Mueller. And now you have specific agents, FBI agents, who have gone public accusing Mueller of protecting the Saudis. Crazy. So, I mean, this is where things get really crazy, right? Because supposedly we're supposed to believe that Mueller is an enemy of the president. The president is in business with the Saudis or benefits from a relationship with the Saudis through his son-in-law, Kushner. And yet somehow they're on the same damn team. <laughs> Bonkers. It is. It's hard to wrap your head around. Is that too? And, and actually it can, uh, it can, can easily go bad. <laughs> the other <laughs> aspect of all of this. I mean, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I've probably put about 15,000 hours into doing research. Um, I spent a great deal of my life doing this full time. And frankly, there are very, very few people that I will ever bring this up and discuss because if, for one, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, as you see, we've been going now for what? How long? Two, two hours. Two hours yeah. easy, easy, like it was 15 minutes almost. 
Exactly. And, and I'll be honest, I could literally do this for 24 hours without taking a break and we would not go over a single thing twice. It's just, it's the amount, again, this is why I say, why do we need a new investigation? The evidence is overwhelming. The question is, what are you going to do with the new investigation? Do you really think a new investigation is going to lead to holding anybody accountable? Because just tell me who you think can hold any of these people accountable. They make the rules. So the people who make the rules are not held to account. The rules benefit them. That's where they get their power from. They make the rules. So how do you remove their power? What was that? I was going to say, they, they, make the, they make the rules. Right. So you're not going to do it through the law. <laughs> how, what, what's, your, what's your opinion? How do, uh, how do, how do people go, go about well, trying to, here, trying to here, look? Here's a good question, because we've got to start wrapping this up. Here, you know, we, have, we have a ton of listeners. What, what, can, what can, let's focus on 9-11, what can the average listener or the average person do to help? I mean, I think the first thing you got to do is you have to start asking really tough questions. I think it's a lesson in how to think for yourself. First and foremost, more important than anything, it doesn't matter what you think about 9-11. What matters is getting people to think, getting people to think and getting people to connect with each other in a real world way to work towards changing whatever you have the ability to change, whether it's as simple as a local ordinance or something in your town, something in your county, something in your city, something in your state, but you have to begin where you live, where the people you love are, and in your relationships with each other. For one thing, <laughs> this has taught me is to never take for granted the people in my life that I love, let them know how you feel. That's first, first and foremost, because there's nothing more important than family and community to maintain your sanity. And basically, another way, you got to build a lifeboat for yourself and the people you care about. First and foremost, you have to get educated about how money works so that you're not working for money, so that your money works for you and you can, you can live the way you want to by choice. Uh, not by default. And then as you expand and it depends on your personal strengths and abilities. Look, there are some people, the reason, the reason at times I don't bring this up anymore is because of this very question. I, do I have a responsibility to wake somebody up to a nightmare that they can't do anything about or that they, it may make them feel less powerful or more helpless? And over the amount of time that I've been involved in this, uh, for myself, I've, 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 I don't think I'm obligated to do that. Now, if you come to me and you say, I want to know, or you want to do an interview, then you're telling me you want to hear this. I'll share it with you, and I'll share it all with you. Um, but I don't feel that I have to go out and, quote, wake people up. You wake up according to your ability to handle what you're exposing yourself to. And then only you can know what you can do based on who you are, where you are in your life, and what your values are. So if anything, I think it comes down to really defining for yourself what's important. What do you value? 
who are the people in your life that you really care about and building a lifeboat. I mean, the first, the first thing is, you know, we're going through some really challenging times. So the first thing you got to do is worry about taking care of yourself. One, you know, it's like on a plane, right? Yep. You put your mask on before you put it on the kid. <laughs> Cause if you're dead, the mask on the kid, isn't really going to help them. You got to be alive and breathing in order to help your kid. So I think it's kind of the same thing for the country. You've got to be functioning and alive and taking care of yourself in order to be functional, to do anything, to try to change the direction things are going in. And at least for me, I found the answer in trying to do as much as I can at the local level where I can actually have an impact and I can see results. I think for a lot of people, there's this overwhelming sense of helplessness when you think about the bigger picture and how difficult it is to influence it. But just going out and making a difference in one person's life, and this may sound silly, but sometimes it's as simple as smiling at a homeless person and acknowledging their humanity. So again, I think it just depends on where you are and who you are and what's important to you. But there are plenty of ways to plug in to try to make the world a better place and just to be human beings and treat each other with respect and dignity. First and foremost, start conversations with people who you may not agree with and really listen to what they're saying and why they believe what they believe. Just listen. Don't challenge. Don't push. And you don't know what can happen. But that's how you begin to build bridges, because I think our greatest challenge is the media. Everything is, seems to be designed at this point to kind of push us apart, to make us hate, and to make us afraid. And I think the greatest struggle and challenge is to not fall victim to that. And despite the fear, to choose to love and to choose to build community and to choose to build a positive future and not fall victim to some sense of powerlessness, depression, and helplessness, because that's where the powerful maintain and accumulate more power is when you feel that your life doesn't matter or that you're unimportant. And rather than getting angry or going out and taking that out in a senseless act of violence on total strangers, try to build community try to bring people together. I think you definitely have hit on everything that is, that needs to be done. Well, um, well a lot of, a lot of these ideas I can personally say are going, going forward in education or some of the, at least the leading edges of education is talking about empathy, the way that we make human connections and we need more of that. And in order to face the, the fears, a lot of them that which have, grown uh at least from you know from the time of 9-11 if not before that like those things that have been ingrained in our society it's now time for us to face that and those fears which have grown out of control and these these flaws in our society which we've let to kind of run rampant and i think we're get, we're gonna there, there's gonna be a tipping point and it's either coming soon or um or there's gonna be or at least i'm we're hopeful that there's going to be a time, but I think you definitely uh, highlighted a lot of that for us just now. 
And I think we, you know, it's up to us to make it happen. I think the, the worst thing to do is to fall prey to cynicism and fear and just buy into the agenda that's being projected from on high, you know, that there are all these external threats and there are all these internal threats and there are all these people who are different than you are. And yet we all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. And if we don't figure out how to make this work, it's not going to. (laughs) Yeah, you're exactly, I think you're nailed it right on the head there. Mike, but, um, so we're going to wrap it up, I think here at this point. And, um, but you've been an awesome guest. I think you've probably been one of our, one of our best guests so far. Yeah. Awesome. Just uh, just blew our minds. We really appreciate it. Uh, Mike, Uh, you can find, and I want to thank your Patreon, uh, supporters for their great questions. Oh yeah. There, there's a lot more. I'm sure we could do another hour or two of questions if we took all of them, but, uh, Micah, where can where where can people go to find all the information that you've researched over the last fifteen thousand hours? Is it all on nine nine one one truth.org? Well, I mean, yeah, Improbable Collapse is like thirteen years old. Uh you can watch it for free on YouTube. Um and then nine eleven truth.org has this incredible history. Um, uh, just to be clear, I didn't start it. I wasn't one of the founding members. Uh, I didn't get involved with 911truth.org until like 05, 06. Um, but it's been around for a very, very long time. It started out when other grassroots organizations kind of all came together in 03 to really push the government to have a real investigation, which uh, they managed to avoid for nearly a year uh, before even deciding they were going to investigate. And there are lots of articles, there are lots, it's broken down into categories and tags, and the the website has been maintained and kind of updated, obviously, since the beginning, but it's there for research. So, like, literally, if you go up to the menu or whatever, you'll notice on um, an article, there'll be a category, like destruction of evidence. You click on that you're going to see a gazillion articles that are focused mainly on destruction of evidence. If you want to know about a particular agency like the FBI, click on that. And then you'll have hundreds of articles about the FBI going back 15 years in some cases. So there is just an overwhelming amount of information. That's why it's all there. And um, you can always email me at mike at 911truth.org. Uh, we're one of the few websites where we actually do answer questions. As you guys know, you emailed, you got an interview. That's true. I, I sent about a dozen, a dozen out and uh, you were the man. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. Nobody, nobody on this topic. Um, I don't, I don't understand it, <laughs> but yeah, there are very few people who respond to inquiries. And frankly, I even answer the people who send really nasty emails and on a last note, I will say this, over the last 15 years, the number of nasty emails has gone down by about 99.9%. <laughs> and the number of uh, high school and college people writing papers asking questions has just exploded. That's good. So to me, that's a really good sign. There are people who do want to know what happened. Awesome. Mike, we really appreciate appreciate you coming on here. Uh, We're going to let you go. Anything, any final words, anything else you want to plug? 
Nope, got nothing to plug, man. Just the truth. No, you got no no Twitter, Instagram, social media, or anything like that, or? I am I am not on social media at all. There you go. <laughs> all right, Mike Berger, everyone. Nine one one truth dot org. A legend. Hey, thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Braden Zell, Dan, thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh, we'll ha- we'll have to do it again. Maybe uh, we'll do it on the, our our reunion show next year again. Oh, sounds good, man. That sounds great. Right on. Okay, brother, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mike Berger, everybody, just dropping knowledge bombs left and right. Fantastic. I couldn't keep up. I I didn't even know what was going on half the time. It was so much information. Yes. That was key. We have to go. No space news. No UFO case for the week. Nothing. I have to go. I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) So bad. (laughs) We went... I didn't want to leave. We went uh, two. Oh, that's two hours and forty minutes. And we've I'm, been recording. I'm dying. I'm dying. And then I texted Dan. I texted Dan like twenty-five so minutes ago, laugh. saying, "Hey, man, we gotta wrap this up. I gotta go to the bathroom really bad." <laughs> and there was like three so interjections no, trying to dying. wrap it up, and then he'd go on. I was like. Oh man, that's I was like he's it's so interesting to listen to, and You're at the so, same time I'm like I couldn't cut dying, in. So. I couldn't cut in, man. He was just he had too much knowledge. I wanted to ask more questions. I know, but it was so good. I, like, it was good. If we would have let Zell run it, we would have been here all night. If, well, I, we right at the start, I was like, you know what? I can't say anything, or this is going to go on forever. I had so many questions. I was like, you know what? This let's, I'm just going to let him say his stuff. See, we'll we'll ask questions. Zell. Zell's just going to be like, I'm going to sit here all day. I just talk. I'll talk to this guy all night. I would talk to the motherfucker. I'm I might just do my own podcast just with him on my own. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh See, we'll do we're gonna call him back after this, right? Yeah, I'm gonna call him right right now. Actually, you guys are gonna hang up and I'm going for another four hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As we always say at the end of these things, uh well, first off, we're gonna have regular case files next week. We always like to maybe we'll throw in some more interviews. Um, and we'll be back to regular case file next week. As we say at the end of these things, keep those eyes on the skies. Thanks everyone. Peace.